Hi, everyone. I'm Devin McDonald, a partner at OpenView, where I spend a lot of time talking to both aspiring and serial board members. This season on Build, we're talking about the journey to the boardroom. Each week, I'll speak with executives who will share their unique stories and insights to help you either consider what type of persona to bring onto your board if you're a CEO, and or help you think through what your path will be to get to the boardroom as an independent director. Now, on with the show. Today, we're joined by Bill Wagner, who's currently the CEO of LogMeIn. He originally joined the company in 2013, serving as LogMeIn's first ever chief operating officer, and he played a key role in the company's rapid growth and expansion to become one of the world's most preeminent SaaS providers. He was promoted to president early in 2015 and joined LogMeIn's board of directors uh, shortly thereafter. Before Bill joined Longmian, he was the chief operating officer of Vocus, a cloud marketing software company where he led sales, marketing, and services organizations. Bill, it is so great to have you here today. Thank you for joining the Build podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So my first favorite question to ask for any of my podcasts is, what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah. So, you know, when you ask that question, I've listened to some of your previous answers you've gotten and, you know, they're all so interesting and a lot of people had a, I think pretty early on in their career knew what they wanted to be. And that's not the case with me at all. I actually wanted to be a carpenter. Oh, interesting. Uh, We have not got that response yet. Don't ask me how I got that. I loved to build things when I was younger and then I wanted to put together engines and other things. I was kind of mechanically inclined, but I decided ultimately not to pursue that. So there you go. Well, yeah, you like to build things and I guess you can see how that would correlate to building great companies. So interesting. Yeah, I suppose so. Indirectly. (laughs) indirectly. (laughs) If you kind of squint, you can see that. Exactly. (laughs) That might be a bit of a stretch, but I'll take it. That's good. Thanks. So in the earlier days of your career, you were a marketing executive, first at telco brands like AT&T and Fiberlink, and then ultimately the CMO of Vocus before you pivoted to the COO about four years in. I would love to hear about that transition from marketing to more of a broader business leadership role. And, you know, not everyone can really make that leap. I mean, that's a pretty interesting transition to make. So how did you make that successful? I think I would start by saying it's actually probably the latest transition I made. I started from sales in the beginning, and the first transition was moving from sales to marketing. And from a marketing perspective, I think that gave me a real insight into what it was like to support and work with a sales team. So I think there's different types of marketing if you come out of B2B or B2C. And I came up in a B2B environment, so I always really felt the connection to the sales organization while I was in marketing. So when I became a marketer and ultimately a CMO, it was natural for me to work really closely with sales. And I think ultimately then that led me to running sales and marketing together. And that was the next step. So from sales to marketing and then running both marketing and sales. And then ultimately at that stage, that lent itself to a much bigger role. So that kind of made the transition to a broader COO role a lot easier by that point in my career, I was already taking on a lot more responsibility between sales, marketing, and actually care. I was running pretty much the whole go-to-market side of the business, and then the broader responsibilities just came pretty naturally. Okay, that makes sense. So ultimately, you were almost the CRO of the business. That's right. Maybe before they were, the CRO role became so popular. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think I remember the first time I was talking to my CEO in early 2000s about a CMO role, and that really at that time was a relatively new title. And then obviously the CRO role is something in the last 10 years you've really seen pop up, but that's been the journey. So in 2013, you made the move to log me in as the president and COO. 
And so this is now hard to believe it's 2019, six years ago. Yeah. Would love to just hear a bit more about Lobbyin and what it looked like at that time, you know, from a headcount perspective, et cetera. And what was your key role coming into the business? Interesting. Logman was at a really interesting stage in its life cycle, and I'm a big believer in companies having life cycles. And ironically, in 2012, it seems crazy to say this, but there weren't really that many public software as a service companies. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I remember when I started at Vocus in 2006, I would go meet with investors, and I would literally have to explain what software as a service was, even the acronym software as a service. I would have to like walk people through that and what that was like. Obviously, that wasn't the case by 2013 when I joined LogMeIn, but nevertheless, there weren't that many public software as a service companies. And so you kind of knew who was out there. You knew who had a good reputation. And LogMeIn was one of those companies that had a good reputation, even though I didn't know too much about the company. So when I got called and came up and started talking to the team here, you know, the company was at a pretty interesting state. So 2012, right before I joined, the company was about $140 million in revenue, about a little under 500 employees, I believe, at the time, and really kind of selling legacy products, selling that first generation of products that the company had been built on. And some of those products were becoming a little bit kind of outdated for a cloud-based world and really the company really needed to reaccelerate. The growth had slowed down as a result to only about 12%. And through a couple of moves that we were able to make over the next couple of years, I really had the benefit of working with the team to accelerate growth. And in the next couple of years, we more than doubled the company organically. And that was really a lot of fun. And that was that next stage of growth. And I think we've gone on from there. What would you say would be the biggest driver of that growth? I'm sure there were a lot of things that were happening, but was it primarily the new products? Was it the yeah. executive team? What stands out to you? It was three things primarily. Number one is we had some legacy products that we were still investing in and some emerging products that really we were probably starving at the time. And so just having a fresh set of eyes, reinvesting some of those dollars, taking them away from some of our legacy products and putting them towards the growth products. That was the first thing. And those growth products then became our fastest growing products and really propelled a lot of growth over the next couple of years. Second thing we did was we got serious about pricing and packaging. The company, LogMan, is a pioneer in the freemium business model. I mean, today, freemium is something we all take for granted. But back in 2003, 2004, when the company was founded, it was a pretty rare thing. Hence, the pricing models in the company were really pretty much either free or paid. They weren't super sophisticated. And so just taking a look at that and ending some of the free products and turning them into premium products and then repackaging some other products, that was another big driver of growth during that period of time. And the third one was really standing up a more data-driven inside sales organization at scale. So because we were a freemium model, we were really comfortable with the freemium to conversion to paying customer model. But if you didn't convert, a lot of those customers we never called, never followed up on. So we introduced scoring methodology. We started scoring those, almost treating them as leads, and ultimately having an inside sales organization follow up with those leads. And that was the third point that drove a lot of growth during that time period. I'm so glad that you brought up the point about and being a you know pioneer of the freemium model. Something we're talking about a lot of these days at OpenView is the whole concept of product-led growth. And it is true. I mean, LogMeIn was one of the businesses that really championed that earlier. Would love to hear more about like what the philosophy was with going freemium so early. No, I wasn't here in the very early days. I just think it was a really efficient go-to-market model that Michael Simon and Martin Anka, the two founders, were looking for a lightweight. They were technologists. They were product and engineering leaders. 
And I think marketing was scientific enough and a freemium model could be broken down. It's really math, as you know. So I think it's something that their engineering-oriented minds could really grasp and wrap their head around. So I think that's probably it as much as anything else and probably the lack of a lot of money to begin with made it a really simple streamlined go-to-market model. So I think that's probably what drove it in its early days for sure. Then of course, I think we've built up such expertise. Now a lot of LogMeIn employees who have been here and participated and have gone on to be a founder or go be a big participant in other companies that have embraced the freemium model. So as you said today, a lot of companies, it's often one of the first models that they embrace. Mm -hmm, Certainly is. Would love to hear about your role with the board when you first joined LogMeIn. So you initially joined as the president and COO. What did your involvement with the board look like at that point in time? And then how has it transformed as you have become, obviously, the CEO? I was in a position where I was participating in board meetings right out of the gate. So when I joined as chief operating officer, I immediately was in front of the board And within a few months, I was presenting the annual plan to the board. So Michael, our CEO and chairman, had given me the opportunity and put me out in front, which is a role that I was comfortable with. I had obviously presented it in boardrooms previously. Mm -hmm. So it felt quite natural to me. And I think a real credit to Michael and his willingness to let me take that role. And then I think what it did is it helped the board gain confidence in me as an operator and as a leader and vice versa. It helped me get comfortable with the board. Michael encouraged me to reach out to board members directly. So I was able to have one-on-ones with board members. And ultimately, when the time came for me to step into the CEO role, it was a pretty easy transition for me and my role at the board. So at that point in time, when you did become the CEO, were there any changes in the boardroom? Because you'd obviously been sort of fulfilling this great role for years prior. Yeah, no, not initially. Initially, it was uh, pretty much the board that was here. And when I stepped into the role, we were beginning to make some changes. So we probably were you know, beginning to think about what we wanted the board to look like. But pretty soon thereafter, we did a pretty significant merger and that really changed the profile of the company and hence really shaped the board for the next couple of years. When we met a few weeks back, Bill, you were talking a bit about how you work with your board and how you communicate with your board and ultimately really get the most leverage out of them. Would love for you to just share some of those insights. I mean, I love the idea of the thought that you put into the pre-board conversations and just getting everyone aligned so that you could be really efficient day of. Would love to hear just any advice from that perspective, because I think all CEOs could sort of benefit from adhering to those best practices. First of all, I acknowledge that everyone's style is different and all boards are different. But what worked for me is in several board interactions I'd had over the years, what I found to be somewhat frustrating and not a great use of the board's time was discussions that would really wander. And I used to call them taking walks in the woods with the board. You'd go down these different paths and they really necessarily wouldn't be strategic. And you certainly see this in smaller companies. But as companies grow and the strategic issues, I think, are even more important and much more plentiful, it's really important, in my view, to keep the formal board meetings really tight. And that's something which I've tried to put in place. At the same time, I also want to benefit from the counsel of the board members and the experience that they bring outside of the boardroom. I have a lot of, and I encourage my team also, to do a lot of one-on-ones. 
and informal interactions with the board so we can gain the experience and insight without kind of taking those side roads, if you will, during the actual board meetings themselves. A method I've taken, and I stole this idea from a CEO who I worked with, Rick Rudman at Vocus. He would put together a board memo and it would essentially summarize all the operational issues that we weren't going to talk about in the boardroom. So every board member is going to come to the boardroom with questions, but a lot of those questions aren't necessarily strategic and doesn't warrant a lot of time at the boardroom. So I put together today, I do this for every board meeting, about a, a memo. Sometimes it's between, I'd say, five to seven pages. It summarizes the operations of the business, summarizes what's going on, and then introduces the topics that I'm going to want to talk about with the board in the boardroom and give some context for that. And I have found that that's a very useful tool. And I've been told by my board members that they've then put that in place in some of the other companies that they support. I like that. Great recommendation. And it helps people prepare and really kind of sets the tone. Would love to hear now about when you started exploring external board seats and what really just drove that decision to start looking at some boards outside of obviously your log me in operator role. Yeah, I suspect some of your listeners are probably more sophisticated. I was really pretty heads down, just focused on being an operator and doing the best job I could. It was really the suggestion of my venture capital partners and some of my earlier companies that I worked at. So I'm sure, Devin, as you work with CEOs, you may tap them, you may recognize it's going to help them and it's going to help you help them be a better CEO if you can get them on a board of another company. And that's exactly what happened. So Edison Partners had funded both Fiberlink and Vocus. And they pulled me in initially to a private company board. And that was great experience. Eventually, that was M5 Networks, which we sold to Shortel. And then, you know, we kind of went from there. But it wasn't something I actually thought a lot about or really sought out in the early days, especially when I was not a CEO. And I think that's one of the misconceptions is that you have to be a CEO to be on the board. And I don't think that's true at all. So I would love to hear about how you joined the boards of Akamai and Turn Zero. I believe it was just a couple of years back now that you joined both boards. What was the rationale for ultimately taking those seats? Well, first of all, I think I had to be, and I think my board had to be comfortable that I had the bandwidth. When I took over the CEO role late in 2015, I was definitely not interested in other board seats. And I really felt I wanted to get my arms around the CEO job. So I spent first year, year and a half, really focused on that. And obviously that's my full-time job and keeps me pretty busy. But at some point you begin to feel like once you're running the business, you understand how the business operates, you do have some time that could be spent learning from other people. And one of the great ways to learn is being on a board of another company. And it not only helps you be a better operator because you're exposed to other operators, but also gives you an appreciation for how other boards work. And I really thought it was important for me to keep one foot in the venture capital world in that startup phase. And also I wanted to participate in a public company board. So once I got to the point where I had some bandwidth, I felt like I could do it and still do my CEO role. That's when I started having conversations. And again, it was an investor who ultimately who knew me, who I'd worked with before, who produced me to Akamai. And the founders of Turn Zero, the other company you mentioned, that's a startup. And I had worked with those founders before, believed in them, and participated in a friends and family round. So I thought it was a great way for me to kind of give back to people who I really believed in. But I couldn't join them in their venture. I couldn't partner with them full time or work with them. But at least I could participate and help them. So those are the two avenues that led me to Akamai and Turn Zero boards. 
Since having joined those boards, have you sensed that your style within your own board has changed or yourself as the CEO or leader has changed or been influenced by those experiences? I think I have tried to take something away, probably a little bit more from the Akamai board, frankly, in terms of how that board operates and what's applicable to the way the LogMeIn board operates. Again, we're both public companies of significant size. So I think there's probably a few more lessons there to be learned. Devin, you and I talked about this. We can all learn from everyone. So there are certainly things that I'm learning from Yuman Sang, who's the CEO at Churn Zero, but I'd probably say more so from the Akamai experience. So as you've thought about shaping the board at LogMeIn, what has been your key strategy? And how have you gone about finding new board members or really kind of making sure that your board is hyper productive and effective? I think different board members bring different experiences. And I think that's one of the most critical things as a CEO that you want to make sure that you have a board whose members bring different backgrounds and who can contribute and help management in different ways. So really when I became CEO and we did a reverse Morris Trust acquisition of the go-to business out of Citrix and four members of the Citrix board came over and joined my board. And so initially we were almost forced to come together as a board. And that was a really interesting and very unique experience. And then I had the opportunity to think strategically about the board and look at the skill sets we had at the board, begin to think about the board two to three to four years out and what type of skills might we be light where we might have long tenured board members who might be looking to transition out at some point and really begin thinking about making sure I had all the bases covered from a functional perspective so that I had a product minded person. I had a financial experience on the board. I had good operators on the board. I had people who were real advocates for customers. I had someone who's kind of a thought disruptor, if you will, someone who is a you know, offering up some of those crazy ideas that sometimes you don't want to lose that just because you're bigger. So I tried to get that mix. And of course, you're also trying to solve for gender diversity and diversity of background. So those are really the factors which ultimately have shaped me or influenced me as I've tried to shape LogMeIn's board. And do you have any advice specifically for a CEO who is also in the process of shaping his or her own board for OpenViews investments and typically the companies that we're talking to and probably the listeners of this podcast, they're CEOs of businesses that are, you know, maybe series A, B or C. Any sort of advice for that type of business in shaping your board? Yeah, I think there you certainly want, and I'm sure this is the same or similar advice, Devin, that you would give. You want a diversity of background here. It's you'd love to get operators who have seen the life cycle that the entrepreneurs are going to go through. So for instance, for me at Churn Zero, I've been at that startup stage and I've been through the growth stages and I've been through the public company stages. So I think having operators who have seen it and then mix that up with appropriate venture capital experience. People like you who see you know, dozens of companies a year and interact with many, many CEOs and others. And I think that's an important mix to get that financial orientation that a VC brings, but also VCs bring, I think, a really important diversity because they're seeing so many different companies. They cover a lot more landscape, if you will, than I would. Now, on the other hand, someone like me or other operators, we're going to bring a real hands-on practical experience that I think is also really prudent. So striking that right balance, no different in some respects as it is in a public setting. On the advice topic, I would love to hear the advice that you have for someone that looks a lot like the Bill Wagner back at Focus in 2012, and he or she is thinking about joining a board for the first time. So has not yet 
as you mentioned before, maybe been a CEO or sat on a board, but they're ready. How would you recommend that they go about finding the right opportunity for themselves and marketing themselves or even preparing themselves for that type of opportunity? Yeah, a couple things. First of all, I would say be picky. You know, I've had the benefit of having a couple different opportunities to be on boards, but I think good operators are going to have those offers. So I would encourage somebody not to kind of jump at the first opportunity, even if they're excited and they feel they're ready to join a board. You'll have lots of opportunities, so be picky on that because it does require a significant amount of time. Although there may be only four or five formal board meetings a year, again, I think a good board member should be having one-on-ones with management, at least periodically. And you as a board member, especially as a new board member, you need to develop a new set of skills that you probably don't exercise or have as an operator, as a CEO. And that's really important. So it's not just attending the meetings that's going to take your time, but it's really starting to build your craft as a board member. And that is a different skill set. So on a final note, I would love to ask the question, who has been the biggest mentor for you and what advice have they really kind of brought to you that's impacted your career and your leadership? Well, you know, it's interesting, Devin, I don't know that I've had one mentor in a traditional sense. I believe that a lot of people have come into my life at different stages and they've had an impact. And I think that happens to all of us. You know, the person may just be uh, someone who you meet through your college days or who's an alumni or a business contact. And I've had a lot of those interactions over the years that have really shaped my career in a lot of ways and have really been influential. And then once at the board level, I think just observing great board members. I have a pleasure of having Ed Gillis on my board, and Ed is a super experienced operator and board member. And you know, just by observing the questions that he asks, he's got a great way to understand the line between asking questions and making sure management is thinking about the right topics and telling management what to do. And mm-hmm. that is a really fine line, and it's probably the most important thing or a struggle that a board member has to understand and has to be thoughtful about. And he does a great job of that. So watching other board members is a great way to learn how to be a board member. So asking questions and influencing versus sort of telling people what to do. Yeah, just by asking the right question, I think it causes management to think of things that maybe they wouldn't have. And I think generally speaking in younger companies, venture capitalists have mastered this. They're great at asking questions that management will then take away and it will cause management to think about something perhaps differently than they would have before. So that is a really important skill. And of course, sometimes people forget that they aren't management and you know it's management's job to make sure that the board understands what their role is and what management's role is. Well, that's great advice. And I really, really appreciate you joining us here today, Bill. Congratulations on a successful career and congrats on all of Logmian's success. We're huge fans of your business. We're neighbors right down the street here in Boston. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you're listening to podcasts these days. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.